Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello, I'm Tom Watson, and this is my podcast, Persons of Interest. In my 20 years in the House of Commons, I was lucky enough to meet some truly fascinating people, but I didn't always manage to spend enough time with them to work out what makes them tick. So now I'm going to correct that by inviting them and you to join me for a longer chat. In this episode, I talk to BAFTA award-winning presenter and author Gail Porter, who in her own words, did the 90s properly. We talk about life in lockdown, Piers Morgan and his Union Jack Y fronts, and what it's like to be homeless in London. Just a little health warning here, our conversation strays into eating disorders and disordered eating and self-harm. But mainly it's about the effervescent life of Gail Porter. She's a gorgeous human being who I count on as a friend, having first met her at a V Festival many, many years ago. Remember those days, kids, when we could go and see live bands? Gail, it is lovely to speak to you and to see you this morning. We're obviously Zooming each other because we're in lockdown. And before I start asking you questions, I just want to describe what I can see on the Zoom. You look like you're in your living room stroke home office and there is a beautiful black cat sitting on a sofa to your left. What's the cat's name? My cat's called Pickles and she quite literally... Every time I put the laptop on, she has to be involved. She's more needy than me. <laughs> <laughs> Presumably the two of you would be spending a lot more time together in lockdown. Is that right? Well, I'm not counting, but since March the 23rd of last year, yes, we've been indoors. <laughs> me, Pickles, and unfortunately, yeah, well, I'll tell you, my dad passed away, but yeah. Oh, I'm very sorry to hear that. I'm sorry you've lost him. Yeah, that must be very hard in lockdown to lose someone well do you know what we're all going through terrible things and my dad passed away in Spain so I managed to get over to Spain and get him and bring him back I got back two days before lockdown so oh then I put him in the spare room because I was like I'm not speaking to you mate <laughs> oh dear love that's so hard for you so hard for you do you know what it was a very sudden death so he didn't suffer it was kind of went out had a drink with his mates got home keeled over so you know you've got to think of the positives I think I think you do and one thing that I realise in your long arc of a career, you manage to find positivity in really difficult circumstances. I think if you're OK with us going on some of that today... Oh, you can talk about whatever you want. I was going to say, you look great because the last time I saw you, I think we were in Soho with our friends having tea. Yeah, if I recall that, that was quite a traumatic evening for me because I'd started my health journey and it wasn't complete. And I think I was trying to eat non-carbohydrate food and not drink and everyone we were with 
they were pretty heavily drinking, weren't they? So it all went a little bit awry. Yeah, I apologise for that. I probably was, like, not the best influencer. <laughs> I'm prepared to say that I was the best behaved because I was trying to drink sparkling water, but you were definitely the second best behaved. Everyone else was off their heads as far as I could see. So, uh, anyway. <laughs> we were really good, actually. We were. I was actually quite impressed with both of us. <laughs> <laughs> I was too. So since I last saw you, you are BAFTA award-winning Gail Porter for being Gail Porter. I know, can you... <laughs> I won an award for being slightly off the wall. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about that, because I'm not sure if everyone will know that you've won this award, and I, I was very proud of you for doing that. Oh, thank you, Tom. It was a very bizarre conversation with BBC Scotland and Turn Television, and they said, we'd like to look back at your life and mental health, and half of me was thinking, oh, I don't know if this is a great idea, and then I thought, yeah, do you know what? If I can help somebody, and it might help me as well, so let's just go for it. So my poor, long-suffering director and producers with me going, I don't want to do it. Yes, I do want to do it. I don't know. Oh, my God. <laughs> I was like a child. I was like Kevin Perry. I was like, oh, is it a good idea? But yeah, we did it. So we spent six months in Scotland going back to my childhood and problems that I had when I was growing up, whether it was anorexia or self-harming and Things that I look back now and think, what was I thinking of? But obviously I knew something wasn't quite right. And then I won a BAFTA. Well, you won a BAFTA for candour and using those experiences to try and help other people on their journey to wellness. And actually in series two of the podcast I'm doing now, I'm really trying to think about wellness from quite a selfish reason, really. This third lockdown I found really difficult. I'm really interested how people find coping strategies and build scaffolding around themselves for resilience. And you're the world's living expert on it. And if you don't mind, I do want to go back a little bit. When I looked at the papers this morning, the thing that actually jumped off me was the front page of the Daily Star, which I'm sure you've not seen yet. But it is Piers Morgan portrayed on the side of the House of Commons in a pair of union flag pants. Now, obviously, you very, very, very famously were cast onto the side of the House of Commons. I think it was it 1999. It was 1999. OK, so tell me this story, because obviously you are a very beautiful woman. Oh, I'm so um, not. <laughs> you, you, you are genuinely a very beautiful woman on the inside and out. And in 1999, I think FHM put you in their top 10 most beautiful women in the world list. And they took that photograph of you. And then next thing you know, you're on the side of the House of Commons about 100 feet tall. And you didn't know about it. Yeah, I didn't know what was going to happen. And they seemed to put people into this list, which I never understood. Obviously, I'd done the photo shoot with them. And I remember my mum was with me. I don't have my mum any longer, unfortunately. But my mum came to the photo shoot and she's like, well, I can see your bottom. I was like, yeah, but nobody else is going to see it. It's going to be like a tiny thing. And I'm not getting paid for it, mum. So she's like, oh, well, if no one's going to see it, it's fine. And then 1999, whatever day it was, I can't remember, I got a phone call in the morning and it was my mum going, have you seen the news? And I'm like... <laughs> No. And then there was my 100 foot backside on the Houses of Parliament. And yeah, I didn't know. I had no clue whatsoever. And it was a publicity stunt for them. So they used a company called Cunning Stunts. I always have to say that really slowly. Yeah. And they projected it for one minute, I think, at midnight, some night in 1999. And I heard about it on the news. How old were you then? 28. So in your 20s, you did the photo shoot for free. 
You didn't own the rights. They didn't consult you on how they were going to use the image. And the first you knew about it was when there was a news report. Yeah. Tom, you should have been my PR. You could have helped me here. <laughs> well, firstly, I would obviously say that that seems to me very exploitative. Yeah. Did that help you get representation from there on in? Because obviously that's a very big incursion into your rights, I would say. You, you, you own your body. You should have the right to know how your body is used in images. And there was a whole load of people you didn't know deciding things that you weren't even consulted on, let alone have a veto on. Well, now I think, you know, it's happened and people still talk about it. You're talking about it. We talk about it. But at the time, I did feel I was very stupid because I didn't assume anyone... Well, no one's going to think that, are they? People do photo shoots all the time. There's lots of girls, guys doing photo shoots and they just assume that, you know, it's a picture. It'll yeah. go somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> they don't expect it to be on the House of Commons. Yeah. And you know what? Someone sent me a message saying, Piers Morgan is on the front of the House of... I don't know if it's a Photoshop thing or what they've done there. But genuinely, no, no offence, I don't know... Piers Morgan. But I don't want to see that. <laughs> you definitely don't want to see it. It can't be unseen, that's yeah, for sure. No, that's I'm, for not, sure. I'm, not, I'm not even going to go there. But if you think about it, the reason that's on there, that is kind of an homage to that issue that was so totemic for you. I mean, culturally, it was a hugely talked about advertising stunt. You know, you can't do an interview without it being mentioned. I feel slightly embarrassed talking. I mean, if I'd not seen Piers Morgan in his <laughs> pants this morning, I probably wouldn't have asked about it. But even 20 years later, it's there's a resonance, isn't there? I mean, your life must have changed considerably after that incident and that point. You know, it was an odd one because some people were looking at it and thinking that's fun and you know and then I've got feminists on my back saying why would you do this and you're not doing anything great for womankind and then I've got my dad going you've done what so uh, <laughs> it was like a whole people didn't really want to talk to me about presenting something it was all about my bottom yeah. you know it's like when I lost my hair nobody thinks I can do anything other than talk about being bold yeah it's just the way that people are I guess but to be honest with you, now that my daughter's 18 and she's got a copy of that FHM in her bedroom, and she's like, that's my mum. <laughs> that, that's pretty cool. Yeah, I did the 90s properly. <laughs> <laughs> I just like kept smiling, got naked. No point in thinking anything negative about it. It was what it was. I think it would be nice if I'd got paid. That'd be great. And it'd be nice if people didn't judge me just thinking I must be really thick and got naked. But to be honest with you, I really enjoyed doing the photo shoot. I was in my 20s. Who cares? Yeah, so there's a bit of hedonism. I, I mean, I do think you were exploited, but actually your approach to these things where you can derive positivity, where there's negative and yes. positive impacts of decisions you make in life, and sometimes you can be reckless and do things in elite when you're a human and you're in your 20s, can't you? Well, Tom, do you have anything that you look back on? <laughs> I have lots. I have lots of things I look back on. I think sometimes... You know, sometimes people said I did courageous things in Parliament. And I always wear that, I find that very difficult because most of the time I was either being reckless or illogical or fighting for things because I was scared rather than because I was being courageous. Oh, really? What, what sort of things were you scared about? I think if people remember me for anything, and I don't think many do, but I started investigating phone hacking from the tabloid journalists when they exploited people and they kind of illegally tapped all their private lives and turned them over. Yeah, my, my phone was hacked for years. Do you know what? Thank you for doing that because I literally fell out with friends because I genuinely 
didn't know who to trust. And I was thinking, I only told one person. And then I was thinking, everyone's against me. And, and then I, you know, with me having, you know, I've got bipolar, all the rest of it. But I was staying at home thinking, who do I speak to? They were phone hacking me, my mother. And we were all falling out with each other. Because I was like, it must be you. It must be you. <laughs> So thank you. Well, do you know what? That's the real story about it, where trust relationships were broken between people who were very close. I mean, it happened in politics. So at a cabinet level, people thought there were leaks against them from colleagues and actually people would just get their phone hacked. But in very close personal lives, I've had these conversations where you know people have had relationships that have ended because they've thought their partner was selling stories and actually they were just being illegally spied on. It is really odd. Do you know what, Tom? I think we should get you naked on the side of the house. Of the <laughs> I mean, there's a few colleagues who would have a bad day at the office if that ever happened. A few former colleagues. No, but seriously, though, I mean, people thought that you were in their possession a little bit and you could sort of ride the waves of that. But that must have impacted on your mental health when those things happen. You've publicly spoken about battling mental health. Do you think that contributed to it? Well, it could have done. I, I don't know, because I don't want to say that I'm not grateful for everything that's ever happened to me. I've had a lovely, amazing life. I've done some wonderful things. I started eating disorders and hurting myself when I was about 18 years old. Yeah. So it's a long process. And then suddenly you're in this amazing life, which is wonderful. Mm. And you're doing children's telly then you're doing top of the pops then you're naked and then you lose your hair and then everyone likes you then they don't like you so yeah it all sort of contributes but I wouldn't put it down to just working on television that's affected by mental health I think it's something that I was born with talking to you now you seem happier than you've been for a long long time and what you're expressing is the power of reflection. Have you got to that point? Have you worked on that? Do you, do you meditate? Have you got faith? No, I've got absolutely... I don't meditate. I don't do anything. The only faith I've got is in my fellow human beings. I'm just... I don't know. I feel like, you know, I've been homeless. I've lost my hair. I've lost my parents. I don't have my grandparents. I've got my cat and I've got a beautiful 18-year-old. And I just think, do you know what? Each day I'll take it and I'll grab it and I'll hug it. And yeah. that's my faith. That is my fate. Tell me what it was like to be homeless. It was awful. It was horrific. And I did think, how do we get out of this? Um, it was terrifying as well. Thankfully, I had lots of lovely friends that would pop me on a couch. But, you know, I had grown-up friends. I still don't see myself as a grown-up. So, you know, they've got kids and they've got married. You know, stuff like grown-ups do. And me, I was just on my own with pickles, my cat, in a box. And my daughter was living with her dad because I had nowhere to stay. And... I just thought, wow, this is, is this how I'm going to end? <laughs> Please make it not be how it's going to end. Would you say that that was your lowest point thus far in your life? For me personally, I mean, obviously losing my parents and losing friends, and that's obviously shocking, everything. But for me personally, when I was sitting on a bench in Hampstead Heath thinking, oh my gosh, I've got nowhere to go. <laughs> and uh, all my stuff, oh my gosh, you know that programme Storage Wars? Yeah. I put all my stuff into storage before I became homeless. Like I had all my VHSs, DVDs, books. They're my thing. They're my lifeline and photographs. And I couldn't afford to get it back. So if anyone sees it on Storage Wars, <laughs> yeah. it's all my stuff. It's gone. You don't know where it is or you can't get it back? I couldn't afford to. Well, I mean, the people who run... The cunning stunt PR agency, if they could do something nice to you, they could find your old photographs for you. That would be a decent thing to do, wouldn't it? I actually did a podcast with the guy that owned 
cunning stunts. And he apologized to me wholeheartedly. He was quite nervous to speak to me. And I was like, do you know what? It's done. It's done. And then as my reward for going on his podcast, I woke up one morning and the postman was downstairs. Cunning stunt sent me 12 bottles of wine. Okay, fair play. So you did get a little bit of remuneration 20 years later. I did. Yeah. And so what I did was I gave them to my neighbours. I made sure that everyone got a bottle. Oh, that's kind. That's kind. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Let me just talk to you about this lockdown then, right? Coping with lockdown. You've got your daughter, you've got your flat, you've got Pickles the cat. Yes. Before we came on this interview and we were doing the sound check, you mentioned that you'd done a run this morning. Yeah. Do you run regularly? (laughs) Well, when I say I run, I kind of like walk, run, walk, run, speak to the neighbours, wave at folk that I don't know. I just need to get out. I think it's really important to get up, have a shower, get out even if I've got nowhere to go. And you do that every day? Every day, yeah. And do you measure how far you run and all of that? No. (laughs) So this is just basic movement, getting out. Just getting out and also, you know, as I say, like waving at people or just seeing someone across the road and saying, hi, (laughs) I know. And they, like... Maybe five times out of ten, nobody will respond to me. But then I've got the other five that go, hi, why are you talking to us? We don't know you. I was like, because I'm out, okay? I'm single. Do not judge me. (laughs) When I stood down as a politician, I moved back to my home county of Worcestershire and I live near the River Severn. And I ran five kilometres a day every day in the month of November. Wow. And then in January... I'm not sure if I've even walked 5K in the whole of January. (laughs) And I'm actually in Runner's World this month, and I feel so embarrassed that I couldn't do it in January. But I think the cold and the dark days and being in lockdown, it's so oppressive, isn't it? I think the third lockdown in the middle of winter is... I can't be the only one who found it really tough. Do you know, I think that most people have found the third one the worst one because we kind of get a glimmer of hope and then suddenly it's taken away from you again and... I know I live on my own and I struggle. I get up in the morning and try and do the happy face and everything else. I really feel for people that are, are, are struggling. We're all struggling. You say happy face, right? The Buddhists would say that actually the voice in your head is a false narrator of your life. And what you have to do is write your own story. So you dictate to yourself. And there was a book I read called 59 Seconds which said you should practice smiling in the mirror because actually the smile is created by happy hormones in your brain. When you're happy, it makes you smile. 
but they say you can reverse engineer that. If you smile, it creates the happy hormones in your head, which I think is crazy physiological advice. But I've tried doing it, and it is impossible not to... If you look at yourself in the mirror and make yourself smile every day, you feel happier. Oh, I don't know about that. Because I, I, I kind of avoid looking at myself in the mirror. As much as I've taken on the whole baldness thing, I do occasionally have a morning that I just go, oh, my gosh, because I've got a hairdryer next to the mirror and my daughter uses it. And I was like, are you just showing <laughs> off now? Come on. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> but you do. But you are writing your own story. I mean, you're relentlessly positive. You really have overcome some great difficulties in life, but you, you find positivity. People would say that that is quite a lot of spiritual energy has been expended to get to that point. And yet you, you're downplaying that with me. I find that really interesting. No, I don't know. I don't know where it's come from. I think, like you say, being homeless and seeing things I've never wanted to see in my entire life. I've, I've, done, I've been so lucky and I've done amazing things. I've worked for... So many amazing charities. I've worked in orphanages that I would never, ever want anyone to see. And I just think, do you know what? Every single day, I've got a friend in Glasgow and she phones me up and she's had a few drinks and she'll go, lucky, lucky, lucky me. And we're like, yeah, do you know what? We are lucky and we can we can do this. And if we smile, other people are going to smile. Well, I'm thinking wherever you are in London, there's people going home every day and they're saying, this crazy woman smiled at me and said hello this morning, but it really cheered me up. She was really smiling. I mean, those random acts of kindness, they mean something in this lockdown, don't they? Well, yeah, I posted on Twitter the other day from that I was on the tube and just our life now is you're covered up, <laughs> up to your eyeballs. And then I've got my hat on to cover up my bald head. And this guy just said to me, you've got really nice eyes. Oh. And he just got, and he got off the tube and I don't know him. I didn't, I, I was like, do you know what? It really cheered me up. Isn't that lovely? I think people are thinking a lot more deeply about these human interactions, aren't they? When they're sitting at home and then you, you're reflecting on what you're not doing, the social contact you used to have, the opportunities you had, you can find value in life a bit more deeply, I think. I'm trying to be positive, you can tell. I'm not doing as good a job of it as you. You are positive. Well, do you know what? I was going to say to you, because when I saw you, you have lost so much weight. And I know it's been documented and I read it in the papers, but wow, you did amazing. That's very kind of you to say. I'm feeling slightly good. Okay, I, let a, I ate a lot of cheese in January as well, so that's why I need to go out and run it again. For me, I mean, it's interesting you talk about your eating disorder. People have asked me if I think I had some kind of eating disorder. And I... I didn't think I did, but people said I had this thing where I would just eat anything and not notice I was eating, which I think was probably, I mean, it was some kind of disordered behaviour, right? Well, when I mentioned meeting you at Soho, the first thing you said is instead of going, oh, yeah, there was a whole bunch of us, you mentioned carbs, and you were talking about food right away. It's funny. I definitely considered myself a sugar addict, when I wrote this book about the health journey, and when I, I, this isn't supposed to be about me, by the way, so I promise I'll be quick. But I just, I emailed a lot of people and said, look, you, you know, there's probably nothing in this, but can you ever remember any interesting things about me eating? Because I'm writing this thing about how I've changed my food. And like my intake just started filling up. And one of the stories was from a family member who said, the picture I have of you is walking into my house on the phone, opening the fridge, and just working your way from the top of the fridge to the bottom not knowing you were eating, whatever you could get your hands on, just putting it in your mouth. Oh my gosh. When was that? Well, it, I, on reflection, 
it was probably every day for about 25 years oh <laughs> until I changed my nutrition and gave up sugar. And now being on lockdown and having a home office that's 12 feet away from the fridge is slightly difficult. But I mean, it's not, <laughs> it's not like it used to be. My grandfather used to be friends with a man called Mr. Luca, who has got an ice cream shop in Mossobra. Have you ever heard of Luca's ice cream? I have, yeah. Yeah, wow. It's the best ice cream ever. And so when I got really depressed when I was about 17 or 18, grandpa would bring like a two-litre tub and put it in the freezer. And then when mum and dad weren't looking, I'd take the two-litre tub up and I would do the whole thing. I would eat it upstairs while listening to the Smiths. God. Which obviously you can't say you listen to the Smiths now because that's wrong. But, <laughs> poor you know, old Jolly <laughs> when yeah. you're like a teenager and you're going oh last night i dreamt that somebody loved me and there's a massive tub of ice cream it's game over yeah i mean i couldn't stop eating ice cream it was one of the sugary things that I, you and you think you're just gonna have a teaspoon and then yeah that's hard yeah no and do you know what i've never eaten anything sugary i don't think since i was about 21 or 22 really i went from one extreme to another yeah and would you say now you think about nutrition a lot more or does it sort of cause you anxiety talking about food? Depends on what day it is. Sometimes I do get very anxious and like I'll say to my daughter, you know, did I eat too much today? She's like, mum, you had a cracker at one o'clock. Because I think I'm 50, my metabolism slowing down. And for some reason, I think the lockdown is making me think, right, don't eat this, don't buy that, don't do this. Yeah. And it's stupid because we've only got one life. We should be enjoying ourselves. Yeah. But for some reason, it just it, it's never left my head, to be honest with you. I mean, people say when you've got an eating disorder... It's about trying to find control in your life. Is that, have I got that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I want everything to be in control. I mean, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Tom, right, what time was, we, we contacted at 11 a.m. Do you know what I've done before 11 a.m.? <laughs> I had done a washing, I've done the hoovering, <laughs> I've fed the cat, I've done the cat litter, I've gone for a run, and then I have a chat. It's 11.35. Who in the right mind does that? No one does that. Certainly not, so not ex-partition. <laughs> do, you, do you write a lot of to-do lists? Oh, gosh, I love a to-do list. And do you get satisfaction crossing them all off when you do it? Oh, absolutely love it. And I've even got, like, a diary that says, what did you do on Monday? Nothing. Tuesday, <laughs> nothing. Wednesday, nothing. I've been writing a book in lockdown, so it's got to, like, getting my dad home from Spain until now. <laughs> it's going, and then I did absolutely nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Does writing help you get your ideas out? Do you make yourself write? Yeah, I actually really enjoy writing, but sometimes, you must know this, when you were writing, did you ever get to the stage where you just wanted to chuck some pages out the window? I, I know exactly what you mean. I, it's like, I mean, they, that idea of writer's block. Yeah. I think I spent a lot of time, I needed fear to be able to write. So speeches I would always write like an hour before they were supposed to be delivered, and that's not a great way to do a speech. No, that's the best way to do a speech. I love that. Did you get nervous when you did the speeches? When I was first elected, I was terrified when I got up. I mean, shaking with fear. But by the end, I guess you get so used to it. I mean, I'd do a speech at the Labour Party conference with like thousands of people on the telly, and it was I was okay with it in the end. I think because you get a team around you, support you, and you get you get good prep. Did you enjoy your time in politics? I'm on the Gail Porter podcast here, and I'm supposed to be asking you the questions, <laughs> but I did, yeah. I loved it. You can do good in the world. In the end, I'd reach the end of the road. There's a lot of politicians, they hang on too long. You know, they kind of dine out on past glories. You know, if they've been ministers and then they go into opposition, you know, it's like they remember the good old days when they had a government car, and... 
I didn't want to be that guy, you know. I'm, I mean, I'm only 55. I wanted to do other things. What are your other things that you're doing now? Obviously, the podcast. Podcasting. And the whole idea of the podcast, by the way, is I feel like I was very privileged when I was an MP. We met when I was an MP, but I never had time to talk to anyone. And I met really interesting people. So I've called the podcast Persons of Interest so that I can have more conversations that are of a more sort of general nature. And I'm writing books... And I'm the chair of UK Music, which is a part-time job chairing the board of the umbrella body that represents the music industry to government and parliament. And, of course, that's been very difficult, of course, because live music and there's thousands of musicians and technicians and support without work. So, I mean, it's been terrible for the music industry. I know, I feel so bad for... Well, it's not just music, theatre, you know, anyone that's got anything to do with entertainment, it's just not happening. No, it's very hard. Uh, and there's, you know, there's two parliamentary inquiries looking at the music industry now. And even though they were my opponents, the government, you know, they set up this creative industries support fund, which is, and there were many hundreds of millions of pounds in it. But, but when you're not, when there's literally nothing happening for a year, it's very hard to fill that gap, isn't it? And so there's a lot of suffering out there. I know, I feel, I feel so bad. You know, my daughter's 18 and I feel like this is, this is the time that she should be going to the cinema, hanging out with friends, going to see music. And I've got friends that are losing work left, right and centre because they can't play live. I'm lucky. I do Islington Radio so we can get to play music. But to actually go and get sweaty, oh my gosh, that sounds really bad, but you know what I mean? Yeah, I know what you mean. Get sweaty with other people and dance and, and enjoy their music and make sure that they're looked after. Yeah, good on you. You know, when you talk about teenagers, I'm very concerned for my eldest boy is 15, Malachi, and he's supposed to be doing his GCSEs this year. And I'm like really worried about him because when I was 15, I basically didn't want to live in the house. I was out all the time, up to no good, right? And I said to Malachi, oh, you know, it's really tough on you, how your friend's coping. He said, it's all fine, Dad. You know, we play video games, we're in online classes with each other, we like Zoom with each other, we're on social networks together. He's basically, although he's not physically present, he's got a social circle that are in each other's lives all the time. But I've got such an analogue way of looking at it. We didn't have social media when we were growing up. So when I was 18, I'm not going to tell you what I did because I'd get arrested, but it was quite literally, you did everything that was illegal and, you know, you were out and about and doing stuff. Whereas my daughter's doing her mocks at the moment for A-levels and she's, I mean, she's struggling a wee bit, yeah. but, you know, she can go for a walk with her friends and she's on social media and all the rest of it. But when we were young, my God, I remember when my uncle Jim turned up and he had one of them big phones you know, yeah, with, a yeah, huge, yeah, yeah. with a huge big antenna coming out of it. And I was like, oh, my God, I've got a mobile phone. And I took it out and I was, they were going, who are you phoning? I was like, I phoned my mum. She's like, Gail, you're around the corner. <laughs> it's a mobile phone. I don't care. Hello, mum, it's me. Yeah, <laughs> like E.T. <laughs> I mean, it's funny because we would describe the internet as like new technology or technology, but for them, it's just what's in their life. This is what they know. Exactly. Do you know what I was thinking as well? Could you imagine when you and me were younger and we used to go out partying, if they had those like phones, you know, the phones that take photos that we've got now, we didn't have that. So we could get away with everything. Yeah. If there'd have been Facebook when I was 16, 17, I probably wouldn't have been elected for parliament, but... But everyone's like that now, aren't they? I mean, this generation, their digital footprint is going to be indelible. No, exactly. The only antidote to that will be people being more tolerant of youngsters 
doing daft things when they're young and realising they can change and develop and grow and mature and learn about the world. Well, I blink it hope so, because sometimes I, I look at these things that come up on my streams and I'm like, a kid just fell over on a skateboard on top of a dog and that's a thing, <laughs> that's a thing now. I just think, thank God we didn't have them in our day. <laughs> Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Talking about your daughter, she's doing her A-levels. Does she want to go to college? Yeah, well, she's looking at universities, so, yeah, yeah. fingers crossed. What are you going to do when she leaves? <laughs> well, this is the conversation now, Tom, right? So I keep saying, so when we go to Manchester or Durham, <laughs> and she's like, sorry, where's the we? And I was like, yeah, so when we go to, and she's like, you're not coming with me. You're not coming with me. <laughs> and I was like, yes, I am. And then it's all going to be fine. She went, no, mum, you are still not coming. So yes, um, basically, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'll be heartbroken. Will you leave London? Will you use the opportunity to go somewhere else? I do love my lovely little flat here. I mean, only rent. And do you know what? After being homeless, having a roof over my head is just like the best thing in the world. I do think about maybe going home to Scotland, but then half of me thinks I might just go to Mauritius. Why? Don't know. Because it's sunny. I don't know. I feel like, you know, when she leaves me, well, she's not leaving me, she's moving on. I don't know. I don't know what I'd do. I kind of want to do something fun or maybe go and hang out in LA with friends or I don't know. I've always got like pipe dreams, but I'll probably... Spend the rest of my life living in this flat, watching Netflix. You actually spend a lot of your time in Scotland, though, don't you? Well, I did. I was working up there in Glasgow forever. Unfortunately, obviously, the past year, I can't go up there. Yeah. It's also rather strange to go up when um, I've got amazing friends, wonderful friends in Scotland. You know, Scottish people are the best. Not that I'm just yeah. saying that. But <laughs> sometimes it feels a little bit weird going back up and not saying mum or dad. Yeah, that's hard for you. Do you know what? It's, that's the way life is and you get on with it. But I do have, my dad left a couple of flats, so I've got them to go back to, but I couldn't do that because it was lockdown. There's a whole sort of bureaucracy when you lose a loved one, isn't there? That's very hard for you to have to deal with that. Oh my gosh, can I just say one thing? <laughs> Don't even bother writing a will. <laughs> because <laughs> I've spent a whole year of just like figuring out how to deal with legal stuff and death tax so and hard, yeah. blinking. Hey, yeah, it's not wow, good. I had no clue. When people in maximum grief, it's very hard because they suddenly get a whole new area of law and bureaucracy to deal with. I, I often think that's one of the cruelest interactions that people have with the state. I think, I mean, what would you do about this? Because literally, I didn't know any of this. And then after Dad died, got him back from Spain, then suddenly legal stuff started happening. And I was like, wow, I've just lost my last parent. And you're wanting how much? <laughs> yeah, I haven't got the whole answer to it, but I did try and sort a little bit of this out when I was in government. What I didn't realise was, you know, when you lose someone, one of the painful things is you have to write to a lot of authorities to let them know they've passed away. Six months I did, six months on my own, in the house with my dad in a box, 
and my cat next to me. And I was six months just trying to get in contact with people. We actually set up a scheme. I think that when you lose a loved one, you should only have to say it once if you want to. You should be able to go to the government and say, I've lost my dad. Please don't hassle me. We've got a family grief, but can you put it right and let all the agencies know? Rather than having to tell the local council, having to tell the school, having to tell the pensions people, having to, you, there's a million people you have to write to. And the government did try and work on it. They set a scheme up called Tell Us Once, which was essentially about data sharing. Why, why did that not happen? Do you know what? I don't actually know where the project went, but I was always getting submissions where they sort of narrowed down the amount of work that people had to do. But really, you want someone to take the responsibility for that away from you because you're just trying to remember your loved one. I was worried about my daughter because I thought, I don't want her to do the six months that I just did. And I'm still going through it. I mean, it's going to be a year in March when my dad died. And I'm still going through all the legal processes and everything. And I was just like, oh my gosh, if I can do anything to make sure that my daughter does not have to go through this, then I'll be a happy bunny before I die. Like you say, when you lose someone, you've got enough. You've got your heart is broken, everything. Do we need to be doing six, seven months of what? I'm going to find out who's in charge of it. And I'm, I'm, why don't I patch you in? And we should do running together as well. When lockdown ends, I want to come to London. We can run around waving at people, saying hello to strangers. <laughs> naked. I don't no, no. say naked. <laughs> <laughs> well, we definitely wear clothes. So that's sorry, sorry, listeners. <laughs> I'm teasing out the routine in which you have retained a massive positivity at the age of 50, despite... Oh, hang on, I've got four weeks. Four weeks, OK, on the way to it, <laughs> on the way to it. What do you want to be doing in 10 years, in 20 years? Have you got a plan? Have you ever had a plan? No, never had a plan, never planned anything. Obviously, you know, I've been bankrupt, I've been homeless. Yeah, you can figure out I've not had a plan. I'm not Bill Gates. But... um I'm loving writing. I am loving writing more than anything. And I'm hoping that maybe something can come of it. So whether it's a drama, whether it's anything, just, I don't know. I just would kind of like to make a difference, pop something out there and say that might make somebody smile. When you write, do you, do you give yourself a word target every day? Or do you just say, I'm going to do an hour writing now? Or do you have to be in the mood? I have to be in the mood. I have to be in the mood. Because the thing is, what I'm writing about is mostly the books I'm just about finished. It's all about mental health. It's all about my life. So if I'm not in a good mood, I just think, well, I can't write about stuff if it's not making me feel like I'm remembering where I was. Yeah. Then I just pop on Nightmare Neighbour Next Door on the jail. Oh, Nightmare Next Door, yeah. I love that programme. I love that programme. My favourite daytime TV programme for years when I was an MP was Homes Under the Hammer. You know, the people who buy old houses and do them up. Yes. And I, I just loved it. I, I, I'm, uh, I'm rubbish at do-it-yourself, but I just love the people that can do it. It's a it's huge creativity. Oh, do you know what the other one is? Antiques Roadshow. And then when someone goes, oh, I've got a wee spoon. I don't think it's worth anything. And they go, it's worth £50,000. And you're like, oh, my God, I'm so happy for them. I was like, you've got a spoon that's worth £50,000. Just finished a book called Empire Land by an author called Santam Sangera. He's a Sikh from Wolverhampton, and uh, he's done like 500 years of colonial history. And his basic argument is we're a multicultural country because we colonised the world and everyone sort of came back to the mothership. 
But he tells this story about Antiques Roadshow, about where people would come onto Antiques Roadshow and show some Tibetan teapot that was invaluable. But then you realise it was basically ransacked and stolen by invading military forces. No, this story's really bad. I, want well, it, yeah, I mean, it's a terribly sad story. And I thought, you know, generations on, this teapot found in an attic, but it has a story of huge misery and exploitation and an imbalance of power. And where's where do you go with that? Do you give the teapot back? I don't know. You're just asking me about positivity and then you bring that, which is a great story, don't get me wrong, that's a great story, but where do I come back from that? Yeah, it's hard, isn't it? He kind of was questioning, why didn't Antiques Roadshow go into the history? And I thought, well... You know, because it's the Antiques Roadshow. You know, it's people doing their best in the world, digging up a bit of bric-a-brac and having value. But, I mean, it does show you there's there's always a backstory to everything. No, exactly. Do you know what? With lockdown, I guess we're all watching little weird telly programmes at the moment. I just watched Murder. I watch a lot of murder. Yeah. Not real murders, like on the on the telly. Yeah. Yeah, detective stuff. Yeah. Because yeah, yeah. do you know what? One of my first jobs, I was a runner on Taggart. Wait, is that well known? I didn't know that. What was that like? Taggart? I've got friends who absolutely love Taggart. Well, basically, my adorable friend, Irene Napier, she was makeup artist and I was babysitting for her son. And she said, we need someone just to come in and make tea. There's no money. We're filming in Glasgow, would you want to come with me? And do you know what? The best thing was, I was making sandwiches for the old age pensioners who were extras. So I went up and I was like, hello, my name's Gail. Would you like a cheese sandwich or a ham sandwich? And they went, is that it? And I was like, (laughs) well, yeah. Uh, They went, oh, we got better sandwiches on Take the High Road. (laughs) (laughs) Is that right? Is that right? Yeah. I was like, well, do you know what? I'm not getting paid, so what do you want, cheese or ham? <laughs> That's TV gold, that is. I had a whole bunch of extras, like a whole bunch of people on the left-hand side of a church in Glasgow, and then there was a whole bunch of people on the right-hand side. The director came over and he said, who's looking after them on the left-hand side? And they were like, Gail is. I was like, well. So I had to say to them, so when McManus, who was Taggart, yeah. they were like, when he comes in and he stands at the pulpit, Tell your extras, he's going to say, you know, there's been an incident, nobody move, right? So I said, do not get up, don't do anything, you'll be fine. The other assistant director was doing that over there. So my lot, as soon as McManus comes on and goes, there's been an incident, my lot, oh no, they're all standing up. And I was like, shh. <laughs> and the other side were all sitting down and I was like oh god uh, and then the director was going who's looking after the extras on the left I was like oh, it wasn't me oh it was the most embarrassing thing ever <laughs> Gail I, I feel like we've meandered all over the place today right yeah but you know what meandering is great I hope I've not been the worst person that you've ever interviewed on your podcast. You've been the most fun person I've interviewed. And it's great to speak to you again and to say hello to Pickles the Cat. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And keep well and keep safe and keep kind. And you. Thanks, Gail. Take care. All the best. Gail's positivity in the face of adversity is something to behold. And I loved our conversation. During lockdown three, I'm finding myself drawn to people who are managing to stay positive. And on that note, the guest on my next episode of Persons of Interest is the brilliant author, cardiologist and health campaigner, Dr. Asim Malhotra. We spend a lot of time talking about the virtues of eating nuts, heart health, mindfulness and re-engineering Britain's system for public health. 
I hope you enjoyed this episode of Persons of Interest. If you did, do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to hear more of my conversations. If you like it a lot, please consider giving us a rating. Thanks for listening. Persons of Interest is an IE Entertainment production. The executive producer is Lucy Pullin. This episode was edited by Nick at Podmonkey. The music is by Tom Gray. Thank you.